Hello, welcome to the IPR podcast. Today we have Nicola Perugini and Dirk Moses to talk about their books, Human Shields and the Problem of Genocide. So Dirk, what are some key takeaways from your book? Uh, there are a number. Uh, the first is that there are problems of genocide. Not only the terrible fact of mass death, but also how the relatively new idea and law of genocide organizes and distorts our thinking about civilian, that is, non-combatant destruction. So taking the normative perspective of civilian immunity for military attacks that international law and norms ostensibly prioritize, this book argues that the implicit hierarchy, atop which sits genocide as the crime of crimes, blinds us to other types of humanly caused civilian deaths like bombing of cities, the so-called collateral damage of missile and drone strikes, blockades and sanctions. In other words, talk of genocide functions ideologically to detract attention from systemic and systematic violence against civilians perpetrated by governments, including Western ones. Now, the book also contends that this violence is a consequence of what I call permanent security imperatives. That is, the striving of states and armed groups seeking to found states to make themselves invulnerable to threats. Permanent security is the unobtainable goal of absolute safety that necessarily results in civilian casualties by its paranoid tendency to indiscriminate violence. So to solve the problem of genocide, concealing permanent security, I argue in this book that the latter should replace the former. So permanent security should be illegal and we should uh, you know, abandon the gen genocide convention. Now, there are, two, there are two subtitles in the book or phrases. One is the language of transgression and the other is permanent security. Now, I'll address permanent security when I discuss um, points of difference with Nicola. But let me talk briefly about the notion of the language of transgression. Now, it's a term I invent to, to describe or denote um, the upper threshold of that which shocks the conscience of mankind. What was interesting for me to observe is how plural this, this notion was before the Holocaust. So, you know, violent occupations of people, which included labor exploitation like slavery, were often uh, described as shocking our consciences, you know, and therefore as outrageous, and therefore as unacceptable. You know, it was about norm setting. And what I noticed with uh, the Holocaust is that the, the threshold went up a lot higher so the, now that, all that shocks us, really, is, some, is genocide, because it's the so-called crime of crimes, which is a term that Lemkin invented. You know, it should become the crime of crimes, and, and he succeeded in that. Now, that means that, that, that mass criminality or violence against civilians that's not genocidal is, is lesser in importance. It's, it's, it doesn't shock us as much, or at all. And that troubles me in the context of these permanent warfare. Because it's not, you know, it can't easily be called genocide, which is very narrow in its, its definition. Uh, people say, well, you know, these things happen in civil wars. How and why we got to this situation uh, with this hierarchy and in international law with, and this new upper threshold of the language of transgression is a history I tell in the book. So the book is a history book. Thank you, Dirk. And Nicola, what are some takeaways from your book? The main uh, takeaway of my book with Neve Gordon is the argument that the law, international law, kills while protecting. So uh, human shields can be many things. Uh, 
but in its most uh, popular meaning, a human shield is a legal figure, right? A figure codified in international law as a civilian that is coerced or used to achieve a certain advantage in the battlefield. Uh, so, uh, for instance, the 1977 uh, Additional Protocol to the Geneva Conventions defines human shields in the following way, and I'm reading. The presence or movement of the civilian population or individual civilians shall not be used to render certain points or areas immune from military operations, in particular in attempts to shield military objectives from attacks or to shield, favor or impede military operations. So this is what international law says about the figure of the human shield. The law here, as I was saying, does two things. It protects civilians, intimating that civilians cannot be used as uh, human shields. So it avows the protected status of civilian. It offers civilians a certain kind of protection. But while doing so, uh, it also disavows that protected status by asserting that human shield will not render an area immune from attack, thus suggesting that they can be killed if the attacker has a valid military reason to do so. So this is the, 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 the first takeaway of the book, that the law kills while protect, protecting. But then uh, uh, human shields and human shielding can acquire a different meaning, less uh, passive, more uh, resistant. So active shields can challenge the inhumanity of, of war and the use of violence against civilians, uh, um, which often takes place along racial and gender lines. So it is the case of uh, the human shields who left and went to Iraq in 2003 in order to protect civilians and, and civilian infrastructures uh, 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 from uh, uh, the invasion and the uh, uh, attack. It is the case of uh, Rachel Corey uh, in Palestine, who was killed as a human shield while protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Uh, in, in this form of shielding, what happens is that vulnerable bodies are deployed in order to denounce and prevent the use of lethal force rather than legitimizing it. They are used to denounce what activists perceive as a form of uh, dehumanization, striking back against uh, uh, those very militaries and state security forces which like to portray themselves as forces of humanity. So, um, to conclude, uh, the main takeaway is that the politics of human shielding is a politics of vulnerability, uh, in which a vulnerable body is mobilized in order to justify or resist violence. This politics of vulnerability can take uh, different uh, directions. Thank you, Nicola. So putting the two books in conversation, what do you think are some points of contention? My, my only question for Dirk uh, uh, has to do with how he treats the notion uh, of race as a non-political one, preferring to 
shift to a new concept like that of permanent security. That's a very fascinating move, and and and, and it's there's a lot of energy in in that in that operation in the book, and and a lot of uh, 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 compelling scholarship. Uh, the only thing is that I'm 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 not sure I'm ready to abandon the notion of genocide like he does in his radical proposal in his book. Uh, I still I still believe that it is somehow important to investigate and struggle against what uh, Paul Gilroy calls the racial uh, nomos, uh, the racialized normative order of modernity and it, it's, its most vicious product, which is probably the practice of genocide. But here I might have completely misinterpreted Dirk's radical proposal, and I might be wrong, so I leave it uh, to him. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if we, if we say that, that genocide is its most radical manifestation, then, then what about the object of inquiry of, of Nicola's book? I mean, the, the human shields are coming up in, a, in armed conflict, whether international or non-international, and not cases of genocide. So by, by making genocide the crime of crimes, the kind of quotidian violence that goes on in, you know, comparatively speaking, that goes on in, in armed conflict is hidden from view. It's normalised and considered, uh, you know, legitimate or at least not illegitimate manifestations of, of the, the, the natural conflict, the inevitable conflict that humans engage in. And so... And so it's not on the front page. It doesn't shock the conscience of mankind, to use that antique phrase, which I focus on in the book. So I'm, I'm trying to draw attention in some ways precisely to the kind of victims that uh, Nicola and, and Neve are drawing attention to in their book. I'm not suggesting we deflate the suffering of the people who've been victims of what we call genocide. Right? Uh, what I'm suggesting is that States engage in political violence against all kinds of groups uh, and ostensibly for different reasons. I mean, there's no doubt that racialization processes do take place. I mean, groups are racialized and then attacked as groups, for example, the Uyghurs in China. What I'm arguing is that what unites a military logic and what we call genocidal logic is actually a security imperative. Uh, and in certain circumstances, uh, where, where it's excessive, ex exceptionally excessive, you know, I would call it permanent security. You know, this is indicated by when we use terms like final solution, like never again will we have a, a, a Uyghur problem. You know, this is from a Chinese state perspective, from which, uh, you know, from whose population separatists can emerge. Well, how do we do that? Well, we, you know, we reduce the, the size of that population and we re-educate it by incarcerating it in camps. One can see a permanent solution, a permanent security logic also underlying what I call lib liberal states. While we recognise that warfare has become much more discriminate uh, since the Second World War, you know, when there was carpet bombing of German and Japanese cities, atomic weapons on cities, in which, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not more, civilians were killed. Think of also the, the bombing of North Korea in the early 50s by the Americans, where possibly two million people were killed. Now, if you are in the circumstances where, 
warfare is permanent rather than occasional. International law, the kind of international law that, uh, which allows collateral damage, as it were, which uh, Nicola and Neve are talking about, then you are countenancing the permanent killing of civilians. And why is this permanent security? Because these so-called surgical strikes are often launched preemptively and preventatively. One of the distinctions between so-called civilized and savage warfare is the principle of distinction. It's distinguishing between civilians and combat. Uh, in practice, and, to, and also to a great extent in theory, so-called civilized warfare kills quite a lot of civilians as well. And it's important to draw attention to that fact so in order to break down this, this uh, untenable binary. If I can just just add something very 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 briefly, I think that my 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 feeling of unease is about the idea of abandoning uh, the political rationality behind uh, the logic of elimination behind genocide, which might be there uh, even in in low intensity. Uh, uh, or so-called low-intensity conflicts in which permanent security and the notion of security is operating. Uh, uh, so th there might be cases of liberal states waging a, a, a so-called clean surgical war uh, according to liberal principles, but the, the principle of, and, the, and the logic of elimination behind genocidal violence, violence might re-emerge and... and, 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 and in, in different moments. Uh, so th that, that was only my feeling of unease with this idea of abandoning uh, genocide and the racial normals that is behind it. Well, I'm still arguing that uh, in those cases, uh, which we call genocide, that permanent security is still involved, right? But what I'm highlighting there is that they're driven by political logics rather than solely racial ones. And the distinction is this. We need to look at the way international law formulated the concept of genocide. The, the notion is that groups are attacked, quote unquote, as such, solely on the grounds of their race. It's, you know, they're being attacked uh, solely for who they are, um, which is a non-political notion, because there's no political activity on the part of the victim, rather than for what anything their members have done, whether engaged in insurgency, uh, rebellion, and, and so forth. In the latter, states use a security. No states ever admit that they um, are doing this because they particularly hate a group. Now, what we need to get to here is a conundrum, right? States, when they engage in wholesale ethnic cleansing and genocide, they are attacking members of a group solely because they're members of the group, okay? And that certainly that's how victims experience it. But it's not driven by hate. It's driven by a fear that members of this group can cause political problems, can threaten the security and sovereignty of the state in the future, okay? So there's a temporal dimension. That's why I use the term permanence. You know, never again in the future can there be a threat. It's not, it's not driven by racial hatred. Racial hatred accompanies things. They aren't attacking a group solely on the grounds of its racial or ethnic or religious attributes. If that was the case, why are these things happening now and not 100 years ago? But I do point out that 
for what we now call genocide, you need racialization and securitization. I point that out in the introduction. But it's true that racialization processes aren't central to the analysis because, you know, there are libraries of books about this already, you know, the history of anti-Semitism as, you know, leading inexorably, apparently, to the Holocaust. There were uh, illegitimate but sincerely believed security paranoias which drove these policies and practices. So what happens in, in the literature is that scholars end up, and activists, quibbling about the definition of genocide. You know, does this, is this an ethnic group or is this a class group? Can we really fit it in? I mean, for, the, for me, these are kind of pointless debates which, which obviate the, the obvious issue, get around the obvious question, which is, uh, and the gorilla in the room, which is the, the question of paranoia and security paranoia. There is only the, the point of my point is about treating race as the non-political, and that, that, that's where I, I, because mm. there is a whole process of political construction of phrase totally which agree. which is not securitarian, which happens through culture, through social processes. Mm. So uh, it's it's just about uh, that idea that the racial component of genocide is the non-political component that that is uh, that, that 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 was problematic to me but uh, it's a very long conversation i believe yeah look up you know these racialization processes do take place but racialization processes don't lead to genocide it's only when groups are considered threatening that they're eliminated not not just because they're different you know the ottoman empire was an empire of difference. All empires are empires of difference, right? They're not homogeneous nation states, but it's actually homogeneous nation states or the aspiration to become one uh, that is more likely to produce uh, genocidal consequences. Um, Dirk, do you have any questions for Nicola? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing book. I uh, you know, subscribe to its uh, premises and its, out, and, it, and its conclusions. And I, uh, I think... You know, it was very important that, that Nicola and Neve drew attention to, as he said, a more marginal concept in, in, in the international law debate. So I was very glad that we could, we could join together the books in this sort of review forum and then also in this podcast. Thank you, Nicola and Dirk, for being here today. And thank you for listening. And please look forward to our next IPR podcast.